Some of Behe's fans have found the anti-ID episodes I've made recently, and I've noticed that, according to them, no one is ever quite representing Behe's position fairly. But he has an annoying habit of addressing criticism without really addressing it. He'll acknowledge that critics of irreducible complexity invoke acceptation, for example, and he'll write something that resembles a response to that criticism, but it'll be light on substance. Then his fans act as if the criticism has been answered, when in reality, it's just been acknowledged. So the title of this article from Evolution News is, quote, Perplexing. Michael Behe's critics falsely claim he ignores acceptation. And I certainly made that claim in the first Irreducible Complexity episode, and one of Behe's fans was kind enough to direct me to this article. They call out Nathan Lentz, et al., for their negative review of Darwin Devolves, which claims that Behe doesn't address acceptation. And the author over at Evolution News cites page 81 of Darwin Devolves, which says, quote, Two broad ways that evolutionary novelties have been envisioned to occur, writes Ernst Marr, are by intensification of function and change of function. In a change of function, a structure that was used for one purpose is adapted to serve another one. For example, early lungs in fish may have been converted to swim bladders. This is an example of what has been called the principle of tinkering. End quote. The article goes on to bemoan Behe's unfair treatment, since he clearly refers to the process of acceptation by everything but name. Quote, this is not the first time that Behe has been wrongly accused of ignoring acceptation when his book or other writings discuss it. In fact, precisely the same thing happened with Darwin's black box. We're still finding critics in denial about the fact that Behe does address acceptation. It's perplexing. End quote. The reason Behe is accused of ignoring acceptation is because he does ignore it. I mean, he brings it up, he explains what the idea is, but then he dismisses it based on his personal incredulity. He doesn't answer the objection, he just brings it up. He repeatedly claims that acceptation is too vague, or he repeats his amazement at the complexity of this or that system, and acts as if anyone who credits Darwinian processes for their emergence simply doesn't appreciate the beauty and complexity of the system in question. No one is in denial here. It's just that Darwinists aren't willing to throw out all of natural selection because Behe says it's too vague. He merely hand waves in all the quotes from the Evolution News article, rejecting the explanation based on his personal incredulity and the claim that acceptation is too vague. That's it. In Darwin's Black Box, criticizing acceptation, Behe writes, quote, as the complexity of an interacting system increases, the likelihood of an indirect route drops precipitously. End quote. I don't believe such a statement can be made by someone who actually understands acceptation. The claim that the likelihood of an indirect route drops as complexity increases is to not understand acceptation. Many genes, traits, structures, functions, etc. are there for another reason ahead of time before the selective pressure is present. Moreover, the phrase indirect route seems to indicate Behe's fundamental misunderstanding of evolution. It just seems like he can't get goal-directed evolution out of his head. This very basic misunderstanding of evolution is apparent in much of his writing, where he'll refer to acceptive processes as, quote, a circuitous route, or the very title of Darwin devolves. This is the result of a sort of pre-Darwinian biological essentialism that we answered in the first five minutes of the Darwin Devolves episodes. He also doesn't seem to get that if he has a problem with acceptation, he has a problem with all of adaptation. 
Exaptation is just adaptation. Evolution is never working with a blank slate. So as Dan Dennett puts it, if you go back far enough, you will find that every adaptation has developed from predecessor structures, each of which has some other use or no use at all. End quote. And let me quote from Live Science. It is a relatively new term proposed by Stephen Jay Gould and Elizabeth Verba in 1982 to make the point that a trait's current use does not necessarily explain its historical origin. End quote. I would like to add that the word was coined to help people like Behe understand that something's current use doesn't necessarily explain its historical origin. They just look at something complex and think, am I really supposed to think this complicated thing just popped into existence randomly? And the answer is, no, of course not. Exaptation is just another word for adaptation that helps remind people that evolution isn't working with a blank slate. If you don't think exaptation can explain anything, as Behe seems to, then you don't understand adaptation. If you don't understand adaptation, then you don't understand natural selection. And indeed, Behe does not understand natural selection. That was a crucial blow against his case in Darwin Devolves, leveled by Richard Lenski of Michigan State and many others. I've linked in the show notes a couple great videos about natural selection that can hopefully improve your understanding of evolution if you're interested. Not understanding the power of natural selection is no crime, unless you're a biology professor like Behe, but ignorance is no crime. No one comes out of the womb knowing about these things. I want to read from an anthology called Philosophy of Biology, which includes an essay from Michael Behe defending the concept of irreducible complexity. Remember, the whole point of establishing that there are irreducibly complex systems in living organisms is because something that is truly irreducibly complex could not have arisen by natural selection alone, or at least it would be vanishingly improbable. Everyone acknowledges that natural selection can drive evolution, but how much of what we see can reasonably be attributed to selection? Most Darwinists would say most of it can be. Young Earthers say nothing but microevolution. ID proponents fall somewhere in between. According to ID proponents and creationists, that which cannot be attributed to natural selection is either due to chance or design. There are other options, but that's the dichotomy they're offering. If something is irreducibly complex, like a mousetrap, or an eye, or a bacterial flagellum, you either think that it's the result of purposeful design, or you think it just spontaneously formed as in the Tornado Junkyard 747 scenario. Of course, unlike most young Earth creationists, Behe recognizes that Darwinists aren't claiming that randomness is the answer. This is why he talks about the limits of natural selection rather than the limits of random, spontaneous generation. If we've eliminated natural selection as an explanation, then design is the only reasonable answer left on Behe's account. As I mentioned, I think there are other options, ranging from the conventional to the not-so-conventional. Thomas Nagel's natural teleology would be one example. My point is just that ruling out natural selection does not equal ruling out natural processes entirely. But let's go along for the sake of argument. If it's not natural selection, it's design. So how do we rule out natural selection as an explanation? One route is to establish that some systems in biology are irreducibly complex. If it's irreducibly complex, it can't be the result of a cumulative process of gradual evolution. So, how do we establish that something is irreducibly complex? Let me quote Michael Behe. 
I define an irreducibly complex system as a single system that is necessarily composed of several well-matched, interacting parts that contribute to the basic function, and where the removal of any one of the parts causes the system to effectively cease functioning. End quote. Behe would acknowledge, however, that natural selection can also order parts to perform some function. He goes on to add one more crucial criterion. The component parts of the system serve no function themselves. If they did, then natural selection could have created a system that looks irreducibly complex. Natural selection independently produced the component parts, because they were selected for. Then the system in question emerged later, after the parts were already there, and after the relevant selective pressures emerged. So Behe wants to divide biological objects and processes into two categories, systems and parts. This is a useful distinction, but we should remember that it's arbitrary. Everything biological has component parts because all of biology is emergent. The only things that don't have parts are fundamental particles. Everything biological is both a system and a part. The circulatory system has component parts, and it is also a component part of an organism. A cell can be a system, with everything in the cell being its parts. A cell can also be a component part of an organ. The nucleus of a cell is a system made of parts, but if we zoom out, the nucleus is a component part of a larger system. Michael Behe commonly uses a mousetrap as an example of an irreducibly complex system. It's made up of several interacting, well-matched parts that contribute to the function of the mousetrap. A frequent opponent of Behe's, Kenneth Miller, once pointed out that each of the component parts of a mousetrap could serve a function entirely other than the function of the mousetrap. This was an attempt to explain exaptation to Michael Behe, how each part could have evolved for some other purpose, and only later did the larger system emerge. The larger system, by the way, emerging by the same process that its parts emerged by, and the parts of the parts emerged by. Behe did not get the point. Let me read his response to Miller. Quote, Rather than showing how their theory could handle the obstacle, some Darwinists are hoping to get around irreducible complexity by verbal tap dancing. Kenneth Miller actually claimed that a mousetrap isn't irreducibly complex because subsets of a mousetrap, and even each individual part, could still quote-unquote function on their own. The holding bar of a mousetrap, Miller observed, could be used as a toothpick, so it still has a quote-unquote function outside the mousetrap. Presto, there is no such thing as irreducible complexity. Thus, the acute problem for gradualism that any child can see in systems like the mousetrap is smoothly explained away. End quote. So there's Michael Behe aggressively missing the point, and really not understanding acceptation, which again, is just adaptation. Miller and many others have pointed out that the parts of the bacterial flagellum serve entirely different functions than the flagellum itself, whose function is propulsion. One function of a subset is the transportation of proteins. Exaptation can explain the bacterial flagellum because if you break it down into parts, those parts serve an independent function of their own. So they could have evolved by natural selection, and then natural selection could have used those now existing parts to form the bigger system, which has now emerged in the timeline by the same process its parts emerged by. And here's Behe's response. Quote, The function of transporting proteins has as little to do with the function of rotary propulsion as a toothpick has to do with a mousetrap. End quote. That's the point. That's exaptation. 
That's one way seemingly irreducibly complex systems can emerge through natural selection alone. And here's more of Behe not understanding the argument. Quote, Of course, the facile explanation rests on a transparent fallacy, a brazen equivocation. Miller uses the word function in two different senses. Recall that the definition of irreducible complexity notes that the removal of a part causes the system to effectively cease functioning. Without saying so, in his exposition, Miller shifts the focus of the separate function of the intact system itself to the question of whether or not we can find a different use or quote-unquote function for some of the parts. End quote. Miller is not equivocating. He's using the same definition of function in both cases. He's just shifted from the adaptive function of the system to the adaptive function of the parts of the system. Behe also doesn't seem to realize that every part is a system in and of itself. Part and system are not immutable categories. It's not like each part of the cell is labeled system or part. I actually hope he never does realize that because he'll probably think that the problem of irreducible complexity has just been multiplied. Look at all these other systems that are now also irreducibly complex. Let me just say it one more time. Unless it's a fundamental particle, every part is also a system, and every system is also a part of a larger system. The level of resolution you're on is totally arbitrary. B. He goes on to continue to not understand acceptation. Quote, The functions that Miller glibly assigns to the parts have little or nothing to do with the function of the system. End quote. To which I and everyone else responded, Yes, exactly. He's so close to getting the point. Let's return to the original problem. How does one determine something is actually irreducibly complex? We cannot look at a biological system and know beyond the shadow of a reasonable doubt that none of its component parts couldn't have been first selected to perform some other function. Its current function does not necessarily explain its historical origin. Quote, I define an irreducibly complex system as a single system that is necessarily composed of several well-matched interacting parts that contribute to the basic function, and where the removal of any one of the parts causes the system to effectively cease functioning. End quote. Michael Behe would acknowledge, however, that natural selection can also order parts to perform some function. Let me say that one more time. Natural selection can also order parts to perform a function, and Behe admits this. That's why you have to add the criterion that the component parts of the system serve no function themselves. If they did, then selection could have created the system that looks irreducibly complex. Natural selection independently produced the component parts because they were selected for. Then the system in question emerged later, when the parts were already there for some other reason, before the selective pressures for the new system emerged. Evolution is never working with a blank slate. To quote Kenneth Miller, the notion of irreducible complexity depends upon a single, scientifically insupportable position, namely that we can look at a complex biological object and determine, with absolute certainty, that none of its component parts could have been first selected to perform other functions. End quote. It all comes down to the design intuition. You just look at something complicated, throw up your hands, and say God did it. So where are we? We witness all kinds of complex biological systems. According to Behe, 
Some of them have been produced by natural selection, and some of them are irreducibly complex. As for the latter category, he'll know it when he sees it. But when he was laying out his criteria, he didn't just say, I can tell things are irreducibly complex with my intuitive powers. But he actually kind of did. Quote, The flagellum, the cilium, and other irreducibly complex cellular systems look like they were designed. Purposely designed. End quote. So even for Behe, the design intuition is the driving force. There is no scientific test for purposeful, he just knows it when he sees it. But he tried to give some objective-sounding criteria. A system that's irreducibly complex is composed of interacting, well-matched parts that don't serve a function on their own. The first question is how you know the parts didn't serve a function on their own. And of course, they don't know. They just want us, upon seeing something we don't understand, to immediately give up on finding a rational explanation and say God did it. As Miller said, intelligent design is a science stopper. Darwinism doesn't have a problem until it's been established that there are some irreducibly complex systems in biology, and we're going to need more than Behe's intuition. Even if we bracket the question of the function of the parts, the objective-sounding criteria is entirely circular. This is the point I made in the first irreducible complexity episode, so let's illustrate the viciously circular logic of irreducible complexity through conversation. It's practically impossible for natural selection to create systems that are irreducibly complex. Agreed. Darwin agreed. So how can you tell if it's irreducibly complex? Oh, that's easy. If it has several well-matched, interacting parts that contribute to the basic function, where the removal of any one of the parts causes the system to effectively cease functioning. Those are the ones that are irreducibly complex. But natural selection can do this through acceptation. Natural selection can explain some systems, just not the ones that are irreducibly complex. That would be practically impossible. Yeah, agreed, but how can you tell if a system is irreducibly complex? Oh, that's easy. If it has several well-matched interacting parts, and so on and so forth. Sometimes they add a step by claiming that a system is irreducibly complex if there's a purposeful arrangement of parts. Remember, B, he could just tell by looking at it that they were purposefully arranged by a mind. It's the same cycle with one more step. Oh, these parts look purposefully arranged. Well, how can you tell? Well, because they have several interacting parts and so on. And then you point out natural selection can do that. And they say, right, but not the ones that are irreducibly complex. And you say, how can you tell it's irreducibly complex? And they say, well, the ones that are purposefully arranged. The criteria just drives us in a circle. There's one more loose end I want to deal with. My hypothetical conversation partner could assert that there's a sort of symmetry to our positions. As Miller noted, irreducible complexity depends upon the idea that we can look at a complex biological object and determine with absolute certainty that none of its component parts could have been first selected to perform some other function. But just as Behe can't look at a system and determine that all of its parts had no adaptive function of their own, we can't look at the parts of a system and say that they definitely did. But are both claims on equal footing? Well, no, because we're not just looking at the parts and asserting that they had some function based on our intuition and our personal incredulity. That's what they're bringing to the table. There is no symmetry here. Plus, we have several cautionary tales to warn us off of irreducible complexity. Many ID proponents claim that the antifreeze proteins in the blood of arctic fish are irreducibly complex, and Behe disagrees. The reason the dispute can't be settled is because the criteria for establishing something as irreducibly complex is circular and entirely dependent on your personal incredulity and your intuition. There's also the bacterial flagellum. 
it was asserted that the bacterial flagellum was irreducibly complex. And then we discovered that the component parts of the flagellum serve independent functions. Even B, he admits that some of the proteins of the flagellum could be missing and the remainder could still transport proteins. He admits this freely because he doesn't understand acceptation and therefore doesn't understand that it's an admission of defeat to recognize that the component parts of the flagellum serve entirely different functions than that of the flagellum. Moreover, natural selection and design are not analogous hypotheses. For one, natural selection works naturally. No one has to do anything for it to work. It's partially responsible for shaping the course of evolution, with or without God. Even B, he admits that it plays an enormous role in driving evolution. There are just a handful of cases that he thinks are irreducibly complex. At this point, I'd like to draw an analogy about induction. Since we know natural selection accounts for so much, and because it's always at work by definition, it is the default hypothesis. The burden is on those who want to add extra processes on top of the one that operates entirely naturally and can, in principle, explain everything we see. So here's the analogy to irreducible complexity and induction. So we think water freezes at 0 degrees Celsius and boils at 100 degrees. However, if we're at a different elevation, or there are some other compounds in the water, those numbers could change. So let's say you and I are trying to boil some water. The water looks normal, tastes normal, and as far as we know, we're around sea level. However, the temperature of the water in the pot is over 100 degrees Celsius, and it's still not boiling. I conclude that there must be some other compound in the water that's changing its boiling point. But you, on the other hand, you set down your Michael Behe book in stunned disbelief and exclaim that we've made a momentous scientific discovery. Water does not always boil at 100 degrees Celsius. I insist that there must be some other compound in the water. But we can't taste or smell or see anything in the water, you protest. I reply that it's still more likely that there's some other compound in the water. We have a pre-existing model that we have a high credence in, and it has the theoretical structure to account for this datum. We haven't been given a good reason to throw all that out. You insist that you're just being an empiricist. You're going where the evidence leads you. You are incredulous that I won't acknowledge this evidence right in front of my eyes, and continue to insist that it's a miracle. I don't know for certain that our current model is the explanation for the change in boiling point, so there's a symmetry to our claims, you say. Neither of us know for sure what's in the pot after all. I say this is nothing but a god-of-the-gaps argument, and a sorry one at that, since our current model can account for this datum, and we know this has happened before. I add that this would be a weird place for God to step in anyway. You point out to me that I'm not a theologian, and I don't know where God would or wouldn't step in. Secondly, you're an empiricist, and you're just going where the evidence leads, with an open mind. The only thing that could make this analogy more similar to irreducible complexity is if my friend had a history of claiming that God changes water's boiling point in the past, only to find out he was at a different elevation. Those who would have us believe in irreducible complexity are not only asking us to dismiss natural selection on scant evidence and despite all the cautionary tales. They're asking us to reject any possible natural process. And they don't even stop there. They have a very particular supernatural explanation for a handful of ordered proteins. Again, such a strange place for God to step in. We don't have enough to reject natural selection as a process, let alone all potential natural processes. And even if we allowed that much, which we have no reason to do, it doesn't mean that any god, let alone their very specific god, is responsible for organizing a handful of proteins. This way of thinking grinds scientific progress to a halt. 
But that wouldn't convince them because why wouldn't they want to stop science? They know exactly who their enemies are. That's all I have for you today. I'd like to thank my patron Hall of Fame, Jesta, Phil Stillwell, Richard Crossan, and Pre-Nifty. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com slash counter where you can earn early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon, but you know Darwinism leads to social Darwinism, which as a conservative you are against, you can find me on Facebook, YouTube, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. You can also check out our sister show, Walden Pod. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time.